is to work with stubborn people and cause us to become godly. When he changes us from here to there, that is the real power that the scriptures communicate. Uh, The church has, uh, historically speaking, been influenced by other promises and by a presence of other teachings that have really created a lot of confusion in the, the purity of God's power in our lives. But turn with me to Acts chapter 2, because we want to pick up where we left off uh, last week in Acts chapter 2, and we'll begin by reading uh, verse uh, 41. Acts chapter 2, we'll start with verse 41. Those who accepted his message, that is the Apostle Peter's preaching, they were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Verse 22, they devoted themselves to the Apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the Apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued in the meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's pray. Lord, we realize that so much of this life that you have granted to us and the work that you have attempted to accomplish, you not only spoke about it as you taught, but you expressed it among those who were taught. We thank you, Lord, for validating and affirming within us the truth that truly sets us free. We praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we particularly emphasized the beginning of verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, or as uh, some of the other translations of Scripture communicate, the apostles' doctrine and attempted to distinguish between teaching, as we might uh, process that thought, versus doctrine. Uh, Teaching might be sometimes interpreted like I'm going to teach the ABCs of the faith. Doctrine is when you take some of those ABCs and put them together and form words or concepts. Doctrine is when you take the basics of the faith and you start putting them together in a process and a format which sometimes is called systematic theology. In other words, we learn a lot about God in simple form, but much of the things that allow us to uh, become shaped and become the people God intended is those basics start to be put together so that we can understand deeper concepts, but especially that we will not be a people that are tossed by every wind and wave of doctrine that comes out. It didn't take the church very long to experience other teachers that were not credible and other teaching concepts which were not necessarily true. It's the doctrine that the church taught which gave us the framework to build upon and the church began to be structured and shaped as it's intended to be. So we spent last week talking about the importance of doctrine and the value of those principles to keep us from being swept away or caught up into teachings that can, in fact, destroy us. Without truth, God's pure revealed word and our spiritual lives would become unhealthy 
and undernourished. Uh, we all know what it's like when uh, we as parents uh, raise our children and they start to get the ABCs. We also know what it's like to raise our children when they begin to develop concepts. They start knowing, in all honesty, a difference between right and wrong. At least mom's and dad's version of it. And then we understand that it doesn't take long in raising our children that they become teenagers. And probably one of the biggest and toughest challenges of raising teenagers is because there's a day that they look at us and they say, I know more than you. We might laugh about it today, but yesterday we were crying. Because we realize that as our children develop and their, their lives are being formed, that they in essence probably know a good bit of the right answers, but their hearts might not quite be conditioned and disciplined, and their understanding of the deeper issues of life are simply not there. But they all have to go through that, and the church goes through that, and our faith system goes through that. It's doctrine that gives our teenage immaturity level a chance to finally reach some levels of maturity. And so we never quite get through the information in the learning process to be assured that you and I won't have problems in life. As a matter of fact, most of us probably still have elements of that teenage kind of stuff because we never reach perfection before we see Jesus face to face. And so many of our concepts are not fully disciplined and fully structured until you get to the finish line. But the doctrine was not only a system in which God had established the ability to process and formulate and potentially grow to maturity, but the church was a community of committed people to each other to make sure that that doctrine becomes more and more effective and uh, uh, protective among that community. And that was the purpose and goal of the church being established, is to keep it from being swept away by other quote-unquote doctrines and to keep us stable and mature. I simply want to kind of replay some things because I never really finished last week and, and we might not get through a whole lot of this, but the goal today is to move from, in Acts chapter 2, 42, where they were committed to this doctrine, but they also were committed to the next thing, it's called fellowship. So we're going to go try to transition from the importance of a continuous, steady diet of doctrine into the concepts of fellowship, which is the family of God, the community of God. But I want to look at a few things, uh, uh, because many people are a little confused, because they say, okay, pastor, this church has its doctrine, but so does every other church. And it doesn't take us long to realize that not everybody literally believes exactly the same way. Well, allow me to clarify some things I think are important because sometimes until uh, we, we begin to mature, we somewhat have a flexibility in our doctrine, which does not necessarily mean that all the right answers is the goal. It's just an attitude that we want truth on the inside. And when we want truth on the inside, our doctrine can be somewhat flexible but our heart condition has to not be flexible. That heart condition has to be in the right place because when the heart condition is in the right place, 
the doctrine actually becomes secondary. It becomes the framework, but it is not the substance of what our maturity is involved. As a matter of fact, when we think of doctrine, we think of faith. And the last time I looked at the scriptures, as great as your faith is, as powerful as your faith is, as seemingly influential as your faith is, love is greater. Maturity has to take us through the mess of learning doctrine, of grasping the teachings, but the capstone of our life is that love. And that love, until that begins to shine through the teenager, he's always going to keep striving to know all the right answers at the expense of assuring his heart's in the right place. By God's grace, we're grateful that some of our teenagers have come home. And by God's grace, we're grateful that the church continues to be a people whose love is greater than getting all these answers right. I'm sad to say that not everybody matures in that way, but, but these are ways that God has expressed himself and attempted to accomplish his purposes. We must turn and consider Matthew chapter 15. When we think in terms of the value, the importance, the significance of doctrine, especially when love is that underlying ingredient that must come out somehow. Matthew chapter 15, we'll begin looking at verses 1 and go through verse 9. Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 9. Now some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders. <clears throat> they don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your traditions? I simply want to give the condensed version as we look at this. Let's drop down to verses 8 to 9. <clears throat> These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Now, when we think about doctrine, quite often we begin to feel a little uneasy because we're afraid it might get a little deep and we might bring back some bad memories of times that we were kind of brought through these training classes that they wanted to clone us somehow. And uh, so whatever our experiences may be, it's important to know that how that process works may have been a great experience or a not-so-great experience, but sooner or later, you still got to come back to the experience. Sooner or later, you got to get through the nitty-gritty, the, 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 the fumbling of concepts and principles and organizing our thoughts because they need to be within the framework of what God's Word teaches. Now, many of us end up surviving or becoming mature because we happen to not only come to church that gives us all this information and all these teachings, but we are also alone with God on various seasons where we study the scriptures, we look at God's word, and somehow in the midst of our personal devotions, we discover doctrine. You may not have called it that, you may not have recognized it as that, but that's how the pieces fit together. Some of us have involved ourselves in, in smaller Bible studies, whether it's a Sunday school class or whether it's a home groups or maybe you did an independent study course or maybe you watch uh, somebody on TV that gives you a systematic teaching approach. Either way, doctrine becomes sweet and precious to us. Now the problem with doctrine without a community of fellowship 
is you and I potentially could become tremendous Pharisees. And that's the struggle that Jesus dealt with, is because the Pharisees were good people, but somehow the doctrine remained immature. In other words, their commitment to love was translated into what is known as lip service. Or their heart condition was not developed, so it remained somewhat concerned about themselves more than concerned about the big picture in which Jesus gave. Traditions might seemingly be described in many different ways, but the bottom line is, whatever keeps us from letting the Word of God do what the Word of God is supposed to do, it's probably because of a preconceived idea or teaching that has somewhat hindered us. Notice in verse 7, it says, or 6, I'm sorry, in Matthew 15, he is not to honor his father and mother. That's a follow-up on what's before. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Some of us may have belief systems or traditions that are hindering the word of God from doing what God's word is intended to do. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to identify potential traditions. The point is, if somehow you know when you read the Bible... You think more about what somebody else told you than what Jesus himself wants to say to you right now, as if it's fresh off the press. There's probably an area that needs to be considered and looked at. You and I need to humbly realize that the Word of God is able to teach us pure truth. And when you and I feel that our prior belief systems and the conditioning of our minds is hindering the truth from being the truth, then somehow we need to look at that. So doctrine, in the sense of the early church, was not simply information only. It was the information that translated into the transformation of the love of Jesus Christ. And so the one key way that the early church and the people they ministered to knew that the apostles were credible and legit is love became a reality. And that's extremely important to understand that God has created his own checks and balances in bringing about this uh, element of truth. Now, we, we mentioned how that ties into Pentecost because the Holy Spirit has promised to lead us into all truth. And for the sake of time, I'm going to give you a real short version. We all know the Holy Spirit, when he speaks, it's pure truth. And the Holy Spirit is able to be cause us to not only recognize that truth, but in 1 John it clearly says, not only is the Holy Spirit given in truth, but you also, by faith in Jesus, have an anointing. And when the two come together, you and I know that this is true, because I'm being truthful. Now, obviously, the way that it gets a messy or confusing is not everybody that followed Jesus was honest. That's important to know. And so when we realize that there's a lot of confusion even in this day, you and I need to understand the Holy Spirit is extremely clear. He has made it not only clear in the process of communication, but He has made it exceptionally clear in the heart and minds of every single one of us who is willing to be truthful. And when somehow we are not willing to be totally teachable, such as... Teenagers, they end up with many problems until the truth 
begins to soften that heart and love begins to rise, parents are going in for one heck of a roller coaster. The crazy thing is, can we continually trust that God knows how to speak and He will continue to make it clear and we can be patiently and confidently assured that the power is at work even if they seem to have a power of their own. Even if they seem to be running wild and crazy, you and I need to realize that doctrine that was taught, it will continue to speak in their lives. It's so important that the early church understood the value, the significance of that foundation laid in our lives. Uh, Sometimes we manage to grow in our faith system and that doctrine is somewhat uh, fragmented. It's not really developed. Well, it's, it's, it's a lot more difficult for the foundation to be laid when you've got only half of your bricks there. <laughs> well, let's uh, uh, move on now about this concept of fellowship. I'll simply introduce it for the sake of time. Uh, they were committed in Acts chapter 2, verse uh, uh, 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. And then we'll talk next week about the breaking of bread, and we'll actually break it in communion. And then the fourth one, we'll talk about uh, prayer. Um, The apostolic uh, doctrines or teachings of the early church, they were purified because the Holy Spirit assured that. And they were guaranteed among those who believed it and received it. In other words, uh, it became evident in another way that God confirmed it is He put signs and wonders upon the early church so that those believed who heard the truth, it was affirmed in them, not only internally, but God confirmed it by the miracles that uh, were validated. And several scriptures talk about that. But we want to look at this, this concept of fellowship. And we think about fellowship, we think in essence about a unique community sense of oneness. And that community is primarily twofold. One, it is with Christ himself. And second, it is with people like you and I. There are, in in fact, ways that you and I can realize in some of our church experiences that fellowship has not always been so precious and sweet. Uh, Some of us may have no clue on why and what happened. Others, it became somewhat evident Sooner or later, the Holy Spirit will highlight the reality of that. The problem that you and I often face in in the context of of a Christian community is that we might sometimes have confusion about what allows that fellowship to to remain precious and long-lasting. So I'll simply mention about uh, some of these as we think about it. Uh, Let's turn with me me, to 1 John chapter 4. And we'll beginning to uh, lay the foundation of where doctrine and fellowship begin to overflow. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. We'll begin by looking at verses 7 down through 21. 1 John chapter 4, 7 through 21. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. 
This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son in as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testify that the Father has seen, sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever loves, lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, I realize that's a lot of love, 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 love. (laughs) But the point you and I must recognize, if we still have to be told to love, we're in trouble. Because love comes from God, and because of our birth in Christ, that love is going to begin to rise all by itself. First John was a letter, or a, a letter written from the Apostle John in his very elderly years, because the second generation of Christians had a system of faith without a reality of love. It's important to know that second-generation Christians sometimes struggle the most with moving from knowing all the right answers to keeping their heart in the right place. And you and I must recognize that doctrine was never intended to make us approved. The doctrine was to lead us to the one who approves us, and that's Jesus Christ. And as that love is developed and it comes as a, a birth blessing when you and I are, in essence, born again. The evidence of being born again is not that you said, I want it. It's because Christ lives in us. That is the new birth. The birth is Christ in us. And the way that we know that Christ is in us is because that love that Christ had is going to begin to formulate in our hearts. How do we know that our wayward children are coming back home is because they might say crazy things like, Mom... I love you. And the way that that love translates is the way they conduct themselves and present themselves. They have a tenderness. They have a receptivity. They have a willingness to help out, to support, to encourage. They are actually start showing symptoms of maturity. And you and I need to realize it's no different in the journey of our faith is they committed themselves to the teachings with the intent that the love God would begin to become deep and credible and rear. I know these things are not new to us, but it's important to understand when we get to fellowship that you can't have fellowship, the kind that God intended, when you have a lot of immaturity in the pack. Does that make sense? In other words, a lot of the things that hinder fellowship is a faith that does not have 
a systematic thought, and it also translates into a struggle of a life in which the commitment to Christ is, is all over the place. So we think about the fellowship of the early church. The fellowship was a sense of equality. People actually gave of their, their values and possessions to give to someone else who did not have them. We say, whoa, wait a minute. Some of us are pretty protective over our stuff, and some of us ought to be. And yet the church was never intended to be a place in which we simply meet the needs of the world. We are simply in a place where we commit ourselves to one another. And we support one another, and we build up one another, and yet other scriptures teach, if a man doesn't work, let him not eat. So we put that all within the mix of a growing uh, community of people committed and devoted to one another because of the protection of community. And it's that richness of community that the early church strived on, and that was the real magnet that kind of kept it out. What it does is it also purifies us in the process, and that's what we want to look at pertaining to uh, this uh, sense of community, of fellowship. Uh, turn with me to First uh, uh, John. Let's go to chapter 1. First John chapter 1. We'll pick up, we'll start at verse 3, and then we'll just kind of read down through the beginning of chapter 2. Uh, because the, the theme is about fellowship. There are a lot of things we, we teach in our doctrines, our system of thought, and our belief system, but most of what is taught happens in the, concept, in the context of fellowship, which is more caught than taught informationally. In other words, when fellowship is healthy, it's going to create its own kind of healthiness within our lives. And that's the intent of 1 John, to know that the fellowship is, is healthy and, and the Spirit of God is at work. And the real power of Pentecost was that this fellowship continued to spread. 1 John 1, beginning with verse 3, We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard. That's the Apostle John saying, I saw the Jesus guy. I heard what he said so that you also may have fellowship with us. Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from Him in verse 5 and declare to you, God is light and in Him there's no darkness at all. We, if we claim to have, notice again, fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. I'll stop right there. Many times we, we, we kind of limit the cleansing process and the purifying work of the Holy Spirit to what happens on the cross. No doubt what Jesus Christ did is what is the real power of any change. It's in the blood of Jesus Christ. But the Scriptures are clear that that cleansing is also when you and I are in fellowship with one another. And that's what he was talking about here. Is there's a sacredness not only to the concept of community, but the community itself is, is given a blessing. You know, when two or three gather together in my name, there I am in their midst. The blessing of that fellowship. And sometimes because the fellowship may not be as, as, as genuine as we would hope it to be, it hinders some of that cleansing process. 
And that's what we're attempting to look at. What, what allowed the power of Pentecost to go forward is because the people genuinely and earnestly not only committed themselves to one core teaching of truth, it's called doctrine, 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 but they had one great commandment that drove them uh, uh, not only to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but to love one another. It's the command to love and to give ourselves to each other, and that creates a kind of cleansing within our lives. But it goes on to say that part of that fellowship, some of those ingredients are extremely important to keep us healthy and growing. What moves us from the teenage uh, overflow into maturity is important to grasp. Notice in chapter 1, verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Probably one of the big challenges we have when we first come to faith is God does an amazing job of cleaning us up, but in our culture we have a tendency to believe that conversion is something that happened once and it's over with. Uh, some would say, well, you're, you're playing with terminology because regeneration is a little bit different than conversion. But uh, my, my point I want us to consider is if you and I are still in the, 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 the habit of confessing, it only makes sense that you and I are going to come out cleaner off the assembly line. If somehow we have allowed our faith and, and the purifying work of God to be all yesterday, we're in for a ride tomorrow. As you and I know, we raised teenagers, and you and I were teenagers, and we still act like teenagers, that we all must continuously understand that fellowship is a place where confession continues to go on. There's an overflow of the heart and the reality of what's happening, but it's a constant, ongoing work of transforming us from here to here. You can imagine, as Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees, what usually hinders the process of confession is a view of doctrine that's not connected with love. It's possible that a people could become so well-versed in Scripture that the focus of their efforts and life is on those who are outside the church and how different or how bad they are, rather than us realizing that we, in essence, have been bought at a huge price through the Lord Jesus Christ, and you and I still have a lot of cleansing work to take place. Because the deeper issues have to do with character. It's the inside out, as the song talked about. That that fellowship of the cleansing of Christ within the community of the church, some of the things that we may have lost over the years as a, a church as a whole, is that confession concept. That's what Catholics do. But somehow we need to realize that's what evangelicals ought to be doing, is there's a confession of what's happening inside of us is part of the sweetness of that fellowship. You could imagine how different it changes the dynamic of a church. If you have people you can confide in and share with and be honest with in that concept of confession, the power of the God's Spirit to change our lives is somewhat connected with how vulnerable we are on the little itty-bitty secrets of life. It's not the big things that's taken the church down. It's the little things. 
It's amazing the statistics we hear more and more and more of Christians struggling with personal, secret, private stuff. And it's going to accelerate the charts. And we need to understand that cleansing happens as part of that confession. So there's a strong emphasis. The church was known as a place where you could confess your sins. It was, the church was always known of where people could be real and genuine and take off our masks. So we could be vulnerable to uh, uh, God's truth and look at it once again. Constantly looking at doctrine, but reaching quickly to love so that that confession can become pure. Can you imagine if we don't have the kind of love that Christ had and we start sharing our secret stuff? It would be a huge mess. And yet within the early church, there was that opportunity to communicate. Uh, the challenge we really have is to relook at how that stuff plays together. But a second thing that became important close to that is in verse 9, 1 John 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. Again, the fellowship was not only a place where it got messy, but it became a place where it became beautiful. The confession was not only an opportunity to become extremely vulnerable and real in the context of doctrine, but it became the place where we could clearly understand that Christ is going to finish in me the work he began. It's so that assurance concept and the building of faith was validated and reinforced in the church where they assured people that though you may not feel okay, you are in the right place with Jesus Christ. It's as that confession comes, then that confidence comes, and the two work together within that concept of the beautiful fellowship that was taking place. Some of the big struggles that I am often asked is, how many times can I say I'm sorry to God and still be okay? You ever been asked that? 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. One of the leading causes of repeated sin is we're not looking to the one who's righteous. And our focus is a little bit more maybe on ourselves, maybe so much that we're trying to say, I'm going to quit, I'm going to quit, I'm going to quit, I'm not going to do that anymore, I'm going to start doing that. That's quite a bit of emphasis on, on me and quite a bit of emphasis on my behaviors. It's quite a bit of emphasis. One of the secrets is, is to look at the Jesus guy and realize he's your defender. I confess that one of the most powerful settings or situations that shape my life is coming to church in the worship services and singing and praising Jesus for who he was. Within that context of lifting up the name of Jesus, I was able to keep my eye on him and no longer consumed with what I needed to become. It's a strange thing that almost seems like a contradiction, but it's important to know it's the grace of God that changes us. He's the one that has brought us close to himself, and it's that same grace that's going to do that cleansing and abiding work. It does not in any way lessen the importance of telling it like it is, what confession is. 
within that beauty of our focus on Christ and the vulnerability and accountability of confessing our sins, we can be assured we're cleansed, but the secret to a changed life, ongoing changed life, is focus on Jesus. Lifting up the name of Jesus. And that is why there's such a a strong emphasis, at least in our church, on the worship styles we attempt to promote is because I can testify my life was radically changed because of those times spent fixing our eyes on Jesus. And I trust that that becomes uh, meaningful to us as well. Um, there seems to be a, a, an important aspect in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Some of the biggest challenges is to to go through those transition years where you know that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, but somehow he missed me. Guilt drives large segments of the church, and you and I need to, by faith, understand that we are not a people that our faith is built on that feeling thing. We are built on a faith that says what it is written. And by humbly looking at the Scriptures... We can choose to say, I'll take that, I'll receive it, I'll embrace it. I know I'm forgiven because it's a fact. Forgiveness is in the person of Christ. This is what he's done, this is what he has done the whole world. Some of the hardest things to do to experience change is to keep your eye on Jesus. At the same time, keep your eye on the promises that Jesus also gave. And so if we have that Uh, element of feeling, or we are too focused on how we feel, we're going to find it extremely difficult to experience change. If it's not the feeling, it's more about the willpower rather than the victory he's already given to us. It's in that setting of fellowship that keeps it sharp because someone else in the crowd can help us understand when we're looking at ourselves too much or we're not looking at doctrine and formulating our thoughts around the truth. Whatever it is, it's that fellowship thing that is extremely important. It's the sweet favor of God's blessing and His presence upon our lives. And so we're going to talk more about this next week when we think in terms of the fellowship. The important thing to realize is the doctrine sets the stage or the foundation. The, the, the fellowship begins to cause that internal growth. It's Christ in us, and that's what that fellowship is, but then it also reaches towards those on the left and the right, which creates that community or that safety net of truth that God does in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we we realize that there's so much that we can learn, but we pray, God, that we would trust that you are the teacher, and by faith we believe that you are the transformer. That God, what you've begun, you will complete. And when our eyes are lifted on, look upon you, and our faith is in what you have done, then we can be who you've called us to be. Forgive us those times that we have tried to keep too many secrets. We've tried to keep too much stuffed in. We pray, God, that we might realize the beauty of coming to you so that fellowship can be with you and with each other. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great day.